The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those of you who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where you shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is respected researcher, author, and UFO historian, Richard Dolan. Many of you have been asking and waiting for another appearance by Richard, and I'm glad we did it again. Richard is our kind of guest. He does his research, and he does it very well. Richard will be with us shortly. And speaking of Richard, he will be one of the many great speakers at the upcoming International UFO Congress in Laughlin, Nevada. The event will take place from February 21st through the 27th, and I will be there to meet you. Whether this is true or not, I don't know, but I heard this may be the last UFO Congress, so I hope many of you show up to support this event. That always assembles a number of excellent speakers, and it's a great place to network with like-minded individuals from around the world. I will do my part, and I hope that some of you who can will do so as well. For more information, head on to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the International UFO Congress banner. 
What a great time this is to be a Veritas member. We have great guests coming up in the next few weeks, and here are some of them. Next week's special guest, Dr. Brooks Agnew. He will talk about the Haiti-Harp connection and how it is definitely possible to cause what may seem like a natural disaster. He will also talk about 2012 and possibly the greatest geological expedition in the history of the world, the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition, which he is leading this summer. We also have Jordan Maxwell, A.J. Givard, William Henry, and many more. There is no limit to where Veritas can go. Subscribe now for only $7 per month and receive immediate access to all our past, present, and future shows. Right now, they're almost 63 or 64, and also the Manticore Forum. Also, in the next few days, I will be providing some information and updates about our friend Robert Morningsky. Not to be confused with Robert Morningstar, another good friend of the Veritas show. You don't want to miss this. Veritas and Robert Morningsky may be partnering in something that may be of interest. Actually, it will be of interest to you. Stay tuned and visit the Manticore Forum if you want to be up to date. And just another reminder that due to the number of messages I'm currently receiving, I'm no longer accepting guest recommendations via email. Since I don't want to miss your recommendation, I have a special forum thread where you can submit your wish. That way, I can always refer to that list and that list only, without letting any of them fall through the cracks. In addition, I'm also giving priority to Veritas members. And if you haven't downloaded the list of survival PDFs that I posted last week at the forum, don't wait any longer and grab them before they are deleted. And now, get ready to discuss UFO history like not that many can, that you know that if you see a UFO in the United States, you are not to call anyone but a private company? That's right. The FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, has delegated the reporting of UFOs to a private company. Have you ever thought about the ramifications of a post-disclosure world? Where is the secret technology hidden? And much more. If you want to believe, stop this audio now. If you want to learn and know from my favorite UFO historian, don't go anywhere. Richard Dolan is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com. This is Dr. Judy Wood, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. And before I introduce tonight's guest, Richard Dolan, I thought it would be appropriate to play the voice of Senator Daniel Inouye. A shadowy government with its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own fundraising mechanism, 
and the ability to pursue his own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances, and free from the law itself. Richard M. Dolan was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1962. He holds a master's degree in history from the University of Rochester and a bachelor's degree also in history from Alfred University. He earned a certificate in political theory from Oxford University and was a Rhodes Scholar finalist. Prior to his interest in anomalous phenomena, Dolan studied United States Cold War strategy, Soviet history, and international diplomacy. In 2000, he published a 500-page study, UFOs and the National Security State. This is the first volume of a three-part historical narrative of the national security dimensions of the UFO phenomenon from 1941 to the present. Included are the records of more than 50 military bases relating to innumerable violations of sensitive airspace by unknown objects, demonstrating that the U.S. military has taken the topic of UFOs seriously indeed. Apollo 14 astronaut and veteran of the Veritas show, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, has called Dolan's book monumental, while Dr. Hal Putoff, director of the Institute for Advanced Studies at Austin, has declared it to be a must-read for serious students in the field. Dolan has published numerous articles on anomalous phenomena, science, and the intelligence community for UFO magazine. In 2003, he helped found Phenomena a magazine dedicated to leading-edge issues pertaining to science and society, and for which he continues to serve as senior editor and regular contributor. Richard Dolan recently published Volume 2 of UFOs and the National Security State. He lives with his family in Rochester, New York. And directly from our Veritas virtual studio in Rochester, New York, it is my pleasure to bring back researcher, author, and my favorite UFO historian, Richard Dolan. Hello, Richard, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. It's great to be on your show again. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so glad to have you back, Richard. During your last appearance, we still had so much material to cover, but it's just impossible to cover it all. At any rate, I want to dive right in. Shortly after the last time we spoke last year, Volume 2 of the trilogy of UFOs and the National Security State had just been published. Among the areas I want to explore tonight, I'll be referring to Volume 2 as well. And I hear Volume two, uh, 3 is coming out in the next couple of years. Is that uh, a good estimate? A couple of years, yeah. I keep uh, uh, thinking about how long this one's going to take. Volume 2 took me just forever because uh, really what I ended up doing was researching Volume 2 and what will turn out to be Volume 3. I did all of that at once, so it took a lot of time. So a lot of my research is done for this new com upcoming book. I'm thinking two years is realistic. We communicated the other day, and uh, let's discuss some of the new developments you were telling me about the other day. You're now involved in a few but very important projects. Why don't right. you tell the audience about that first? I, gladly, yes. Uh, in addition to uh, uh, public speaking, which I do, which I do frequently, and I just had a lamp that fell across my room. <laughs> okay. I have either uh, a poltergeist. Oh, you know what it is? We have a, we're having a windy, windy day here up in Rochester, New York, and the wind blew a window open. Oh my! <laughs> and as I just started to speak to you, I looked over and nothing's broken. I'll I'll fix that later. Um, yes, I, I'm involved in a lot of things. One is uh, some people who, who have read my book know that it's published by Keyhole Publishing Company. That's my company. Yes. And. Um, I've really, really enjoyed being a self-published author, and uh, uh, the word got out 
uh, from a couple of other authors that I do this, and I've now been asked to publish uh, the books of a few other individuals. Uh, the one book that's – in fact, I've got uh, – I've just got off the uh, the line with the printer uh, today. Is a book by Richard Souter. Uh, Dr. Richard Souter has been writing about underground bases and tunnels for many, many years. He has a new book that is finished. It will be in print, ready uh, for people to to read in about one week from now. Uh, and in fact, this weekend I'll be um, I'm updating the website to make it really give it a nice splash for the book and people will be able to read about it and uh, if they want to pre-order it, they can do that too. But this new book of his is called Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files is a subtitle. It's uh, a really great updating of a lot of the research he's done over the past decade. Uh, Richard is one of the most fascinating people that I know, a dogged researcher, just someone who uh, you know, combines both good archival research and also the ability to conduct a, a great interview with uh, insiders who can really talk about what's going on below the ground. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I think I can mention here, I think this is the first place I'm mentioning this, Mel. Uh, I've got two other authors that I've, I've got. Um, I'm republishing a book that they, they did 20 years ago, and this is a book by Grant Cameron and T. Scott Crane. And the book is UFOs, MJ-12, and the government. It had a limited uh, publication 20 years ago when, when MUFON published it. Um, the authors have uh, have agreed to have me do a, an updating and republishing of that book for them, and I've just started the work on getting that out. I think a couple of months that'll be ready. Um, I'm hoping, and I, I'm given reason to think that we might be able to do uh, other books by Grant in the future, and I would love to be able to do that. So on a limited basis, I'm I'm starting into publishing for other authors. Uh, I think I'm at the point where I've got a good handle on how to do the logistics of it, how to make it work and not fail. And with that in mind, I'm going to give it a run and see see how far it goes. Well, it's just the names you're mentioning. First of all, you have so much respect in the UFO circle. You are, to me, the, the UFO historian. But then you mentioned Grant Cameron, another person who I respect very much. He's been with me on the show as well. And Richard Souter, uh, underground bases is one of the topics that we really like to discuss. So this is an open invitation to Richard to appear on this show so we can talk about his new publication as well, Richard. Well, as his publisher and webmaster, I will guarantee I'm going to push him hard (laughs) to get on this show. Uh, Richard is a guy who who gave a great interview and... Um, he's just an incredible wealth of knowledge. When I first started corresponding with him, it was many years ago, I, I knew of him. and I had his book, in fact, and I thought it was a good book, but he wrote to me, and um, we just started talking about general historical topics, and uh, I think it had to do with ancient Rome. That's right. Now, I'd studied a lot of Roman history, and I thought I was pretty conversant with it, but he starts talking about Roman history, and I just thought, who the hell is this guy? He really knows his history, and I have learned over the years when when Richard does research on anything, I have got to listen to him very carefully. This is a a guy who is very careful with what he does and, and fearless as well. Now, there's something else. Uh, a couple of people emailed knowing that you were going to be on the show and said, Mel, you have to look, and you even told me, you have to look at the teaser, the preview for First Contact. Tell me about that. Gladly, yeah. Um, well, this is a, a television show in the works, and you know, I 
I loved doing this. We shot a, a one and a half pilots, I guess you could say. Uh, we did a show dealing with uh, Washington, D.C., which is not what you saw, which is not publicly available. Uh, and that, that turned out great, in my opinion. We did uh, an uh, investigation of uh, some interesting UFO cases in the Washington, D.C. area. And then we did a, a shot up, up in Montauk, which is what is available on the internet. First Contact is uh, the, the brainchild of a, a producer named John Doria. John lives in the Philadelphia area, and he's been working on putting together a kind of a UFO investigative show uh, for a couple of years. And we really came together with a, with a group that we're happy with, so uh, I'm the team leader of this. And there's a number of other people working with me. Uh, one of the other UFO researcher folks that some people are familiar with would be Rob Simone. Um, and then two other individuals who are not as well known in the UFO field or not known in the UFO field, a, a professional photographer named uh, Jamie Win Winden um, and Mike Lekowiak, who is nicknamed Lucky, who's done a lot of paranormal ghost hunting type investigating. Um, I have to say we gel very, very well. Uh, they're, they're all very professional to work with. And the idea is that we are going to do uh, legitimate UFO investigations. I don't want to make this another TV thing where we get into these uh, schlocky, fake pseudo investigations. Uh, a lot of times, I think the problem with the emphasis on reality TV these days is that um, – <laughs> The problem when you do a reality TV show for UFOs is you're under pressure to make it seem like you're doing this hands-on investigation. And that is so hard to do when you're on the spot, in the field. There's only so much you can do. You can interview people. You can try to run around in the woods with flashlights. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's goofy stuff. What I'm trying to do is I want this show to be uh, a legitimate investigative show on UFOs. Uh, the reality, so to speak, is that the networks want reality programming, and they, they just aren't looking at anything right now that is not reality-based TV. Well, uh, the, the thing is, Richard, that one of the reasons why I love your books is that you you kill rumors with fact, and you you don't deal with rumors. You deal with facts, and you don't sensationalize. So if if the if this the program is going to be like your books, I know people will respect it the same way because we're not going to be here just uh, trying to find little green man, if you know what I mean. Exactly, and that's a, that's precisely what I've I'm trying to do. Um, when the uh, Washington episode is ever made available, I think people will agree it's a it's a really well done sober. Um, treatment of three very interesting UFO cases in the D.C. area. I really believe that people are going to like that. Um, so yeah, I, my feeling is this show is one that has great potential. I'm excited to be on it. I, I love the people that I'm working with. Uh, John and I are very close in the way that we're looking at how to do this, and I have, I have a great deal of say in how this show is, is going to be moving forward. Unlike uh, three years ago, I did another show, which was fun. It was called Sci-Fi Investigates. But in that case, I had I had little to no influence over actually what we were going to be investigating. In this case, I have a lot. In fact, um, I've, I've done a huge amount of research for future cases that I want us to do as soon as we get picked up by a network. Uh, that was my so, next question. Uh, have you been picked up by a network? And if so, when do you expect this to be airing? 
we haven't been picked up by a network yet. Uh, I get I get word every day or every other day about very high level serious network interest, and I in fact know that that is the case. Uh, there's a number of networks that are looking at us. Uh, I'm not. I don't feel that I, I would be wise for me to get into some of the details right sure. now, but I can say that we're, we're talking with a few. Um, yeah, and, and then uh, once, once we get going, um, I, I think what's happening is it's devolving down to me that I, I seem to be the main researcher for new episodes at this point. Uh, John and I are working together, but I'm really the one coming up with a lot of, a lot of ideas. So um, I, I want to hold off on some of those ideas right now because nothing is confirmed. But I've got a lot, a lot written down that I want to do. Great. And I have a link to the preview on our website, folks. So if you haven't seen that, the teaser for this show, you need to see it. It's really, really impressive. I liked it. But let me dive into something, Richard, that for days and weeks I've been trying to hold back. Because I don't like to deal with rumors either. But I want to ask you about something that keeps popping in my Veritas radar via email, people linking, people talking to me about it. Have you looked into what is happening in the Gulf of Aden? Um, and I'll specify if you want me to. Yeah, specify because I think I think I know what you're referring to, but I'm not. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Okay, folks. So if you don't know, listen to this: the United States, the Russians, the Chinese, the British, the French—you name it—they're all there in the Gulf of Aden, <clears throat> allegedly fighting Somali pirates. But what caught my attention was this that I read: "Quote." Two Japanese destroyers will join the naval forces of 18 other nations in an effort to stop piracy near Somalia. Unquote. How many destroyers do you need to defeat these people who may have some missile launchers but have little wooden boats? Now, again, the Japanese Navy hasn't moved from Japan for decades. Does that make you wonder what really is yeah, going that, on there? I'm very glad you mentioned this because, um, no, the last couple of days, I haven't, I have to tell you, I haven't really been looking at it, but I had been following the whole Somali pirate. Uh, development with a lot of interest over the last few months, mm -hmm. uh, and with a lot of um, skepticism about the uh, official story as as being given by the U.S. government on this. Uh, to be perfectly candid with you, uh, it's become my opinion that every U.S. president's job is to be the number one sales rep of the country for really two things. One of which is whatever new war comes down the road. Um, you know. A, Almost a year ago, President Obama was talking about these Somali pirates and the need to uh, maybe defend against against them. So um, I'm skeptical about – at this point, look, we have a, an administration that's promoting a $700 billion um, spending for the, for the U.S. military. This is money that we just don't have. I don't trust anything that's coming out of there regarding um, – you know our national, our so-called national security needs, and in the Gulf of Aden, it's odd. I have to admit, what are the Japanese doing there? I don't know. I don't know. You know, the word Stargate continues to come along, and I just, uh, in my conventional mind, I can't put my hands wrap around the, the concept of Stargate there. But so many people are talking about it, Richard. Well, what's their basis? I mean, do you, is are they actually just? saying this based on evidence or are they uh, just talking out of their one of their orifices that's yeah. not their mouth we got a lot of those in this field <laughs> talk is cheap uh, I'm still laughing over the fact that we had all of these people who were 
predicting that President Obama was going to make a disclosure statement right. before the end of 2009. And then when he didn't make such a statement, that in turn was promoted as the big news story of the year, that there was no disclosure statement. I'm like, come on. The biggest you story, story that, never that, told. That, right, exactly. A story that, that had no basis in reality to begin with. And then when, when it doesn't happen, happen, you make that a story as well. That's why I don't uh, deal with dates either, Richard. Yeah, the the, uh, the Gulf of Aden scenario, I, uh, truthfully, I, I guess I need to uh, really study this a little more carefully. The concept of a Stargate, look, I don't – when you're dealing with something as crazy as this topic, the UFO topic, I, um, I am convinced that there is a huge part of our history and of our current reality that – that exists that that the uh, the power structure is is dealing with, and could it be a stargate? I suppose it's possible, but until I speculate about it, I I need to uh, find out what's the basis of some of these claims. And I didn't even want to use the word stargate. I just wanted to see if he knew anything because having eighteen countries under naval forces surrounding that area, it just makes you wonder. Even if it were that there was a possible conflict with Yemen. You wouldn't need 18 of them there. But anyway, let's move on. There are a few portions of your book, that I, the, the newest book, uh, uh, UFOs in the National Security State, uh, Volume 2, that I want to ask you right at the beginning. For example, you say, quote, the U.S. power structure, while still integral to the system of secrecy, may not be the final word as it once was, unquote. I think I have an idea why you say that, but tell us the reason why you say this. Well, what I think has happened over the last... Uh, couple of decades is we've gone through a sort of a silent, not so silent maybe, revolution. Let's call it a transnational revolution. Uh, you know, throughout history, uh, the, the structure of power that's existed has always evolved. When you go from uh, the ancient world through the through European Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, the development of nation states, and the development of international links uh, globally, we're now at a point where the traditional nation-state is not what it used to be, certainly. Uh, and behind that nation-state, what we really find when you study power in this world is international financial groups. Uh, as I look at it, that's really where the, the true power in this world is, uh, whether we're talking about UFO or not UFO-related events. One of the things that I tried to do in this book in, is to deal with the question of who's in control of the UFO secret. Is First of all, is there anyone who's in control of the UFO secret? I think the answer is yes. And then the, the next question is who? Is it the president? When we talk about getting disclosure on UFOs, for example, our natural instinct is to think of the United States president as the guy um, or maybe one day the gal who's going to be in charge of letting that secret out. My feeling is that the president is really not the final word here. Um, one of the things that I tried to look at in this book is studying the the power over various U.S. presidents by uh, international finance. Uh, I talked for the first time really about the infamous Bilderberg Group, for example. Um, I mean other people have talked about them, but this is the first time that I brought them up in a book. The Bilderberg, the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, the influence of these financial elite groups on the presidency, uh, I think is profound. And it's also uh, been in my investigation that those groups or groups related to them have a much bigger say in UFO policy as well.
So power has moved away, I think, increasingly from the office of the U.S. president on this matter. Is it safe to say that even if the president wanted to disclose, he cannot disclose without the approval of certain entities, if you will, above him? I think that's absolutely true. Um, in fact, in, in the third volume, uh, I will put in a, an account that was told to me by a man who had a direct conversation with Bill Clinton during uh, Clinton's presidency. So it was in the late 1990s. Uh, this was a, a gentleman who is v very well known to me personally, and I had this conversation directly with this individual face-to-face -face, and um, who told me of a, of a meeting he had with Bill Clinton at a, at a gathering. They weren't alone there, but they had a chance to talk. And he um, had the chance to bring up briefly the, the UFO topic. Uh, this was in the context of talking with Clinton about uh, the recent liberalizing of the Freedom of Information Act laws. So in other words, he said, now that you've helped to liberalize FOIA a little bit, maybe there might be some opportunity to have some openness on the UFO issue. Now again, this is in the late 90s. And according to the gentleman speaking to me, uh, President Clinton said, in effect, yes, well, I wish that there was something I could do about that. Um, and then that was the end of it. So basically stating point, about as point blank as he could that he couldn't do anything about it. I have another story that I will be uh, relating in the third volume, uh, told to me by another individual, very high-level military Uh, connection, who spoke with um, a man who was on his deathbed in a very secure facility. Uh, the man on his deathbed had allegedly handled uh, debris at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, including uh, alien bodies. Now, the, the gentleman I spoke to, again, who had very high clearances and a very, very brilliant man, in fact, said to me that when he was chatting with this, this very sick man on his deathbed, he did get a very strong sense that this was the real deal, that uh, his story seemed to check out uh, from what he knew about Roswell and, and so on, that this guy was, was real. And, and uh, the person, my contact, said to this, this dying man, it's a shame that men such as yourself are unable to speak publicly about what you know, and it's a shame that there isn't a presidential executive order that would liberate you from your oath, uh, to which this ill man, the dying man, said, it would take a hell of a lot more than a presidential executive order to liberate me from my oath. So these are you know, two instances, at least these are stories that have come to me directly from very prominent individuals that make me Uh, feel that the president is really not the guy in charge. I, I have a few other people that I have spoken to in other, other contexts that I've spoken to who have said exactly the same thing. That is a and great story. Yeah, it, oh, it's, it is. It's uh, very telling. Um, and this is also true regarding President Obama, incidentally. Uh, I have one, um, I have a couple of sources on this, but one in particular has, has uh, made it very plain to me that although President Obama has been briefed in, uh, in, in rough edges, let's say, on the UFO reality that he has no influence over policy. Uh, that's just not under his jurisdiction or purview. And as to whose it is, uh, when I inquire about this, 
every single time I've inquired, I've, I've asked my contacts, are we talking about a group something like the Bilderbergs? And every single time, the answer is, yeah, something like that. In other words, private, beyond government, but with you know, profound influence over national governments around the world. We're talking about the most wealthy, powerful people, of course, uh, who are the most ones in the know. Now, as far as naming names, all I can do there is is uh, guess. No one's got confirmation on any of these. If I were to, to lay money down on some of these people, I would bet that one of them would be Henry Kissinger. Uh, another one would be David Rockefeller, even though he's 94 years old, or let's say Rockefeller's people now and Kissinger's people now. I mean, they're, they're both getting on in years. Um, I would I would bet strong um, I would bet good money that Zbigniew Brzezinski is also certainly in the know on this. Now that's the old generation. Um, you know there have got to be people in their in their 40s and 50s who are now the managers of this problem. But uh, I have to honestly tell you I don't know who they are. Speaking of that, you also say quote the implications of a UFO reality and cover up are profound. It means that our society has lived in quote, official reality, so incomplete, so inaccurate that we may, with justice, call it fictitious. It means that the history we have learned, the science that we know, and the very core of who we think we are need to be rediscovered, unquote. Richard, in different words, I'm always talking about this. How do we rediscover, let's call them, quote, unquote, the winners, since they are rewriting history? They have so much control and have this information so hidden that it's virtually impossible to rediscover. How do we do it? Well, we have to use very good critical thinking skills. We have to be willing to to look at all of the evidence that comes to us and to be able to sort through it the best we can. This is exactly what I've tried to do, and I don't think I have a, a monopoly on, on this method. Uh, that is, you um, you study the reports. Well, let's, let me back up. Here, here's what I can say we, we can do. Um, there are different levels of of understanding this topic. The first most basic level is to know what we know. That <laughs> sounds kind of crazy. But then there's what we think we know. But let's start with what we know. What we know, based on many hundreds of confirmed military documents, we know that our military and other militaries have been chasing UFOs. And that's not a matter of debate. That's a matter of public record. There are there's document after document after document, many of which I bring out in my new in both of my books, that prove. They don't suggest, they don't hint, they prove that the US military has sent many, many jet fighter interceptors up in the air to intercept unknown craft that behave in extraordinary ways that are not supposed to be possible. Unknown craft that look disc shaped frequently that can stop in midair silently and then take off instantly. Now, we have these documents. There's, there's only so many ways you can look at them. You can say, well, they're just mistaken in, in what they do, but how many times are they going to be mistaken? 300 times? 500 times? There's an awful lot of cases we have here. Uh, I think any reasonable mind is going to look at these documents and conclude that they're is someone's technology that is traversing the skies that's not supposed to exist, but there it is. So that's the first level. With that, see, that that alone is enough to turn our world upside down, of course, because 
we live in a world in which our official reality, our official truth doesn't include any of this stuff. If you turn on NBC Nightly News or ABC or Fox or uh, CBS or PBS, UFO reality, other than an occasional special in which it's usually debunked anyway, right. the, the UFO reality just doesn't appear. And so people live in an official news reality in which the UFO topic is is uh, not not legitimate. And yet, if it's legitimate, and it sure as hell looks like it is legitimate, well then, the, the implications are, are astonishing, of course, because that means for 60, at least 60 years, there has been something vastly beyond our technological level here. Now, that could mean it's a... Uh, a secret component of our human civilization, or it could mean that it's it's not a human thing. But the the main point here is that there's something there. Uh, so once we start investigating that, that that turns our reality upside down in so many ways. Because then we have to ask other questions. How is it, for instance, that our mainstream news media has overlooked this? How is it that our political system has overlooked it? How is it that our Intellectual institutions, the academic world, how, ha how is it that they've overlooked it? What does this say about each of those institutions that they, for 60-plus years, have ignored this reality? Well, it says some very, very unflattering things about them, clearly. And um, as I have argued, once you start looking into the media, the political system, and the, um, the academic world, what you find, of course, is that they are – deeply intertwined with the uh, U.S. intelligence community. And, and again, some people, they hear this and they think, oh, well, that's conspiracy theory. But no, it isn't. It's, it's uh, objective recorded history. Uh, if anyone picks up, goes to their local library and picks some books off the shelf dealing with the history of the CIA and the history of uh, the relationship of the intelligence community and academia or the media, there's lots there you can find. We know that uh, mainstream news has, has had working relationships with the U.S. intelligence community. And so is it really a stretch then to, uh, to argue, well, it's that relationship that's been probably very much behind the blackout of UFO news information? I think so. Be because, frankly, the UFO topic is, is of demonstrable national security interest. So you've got the National Security Intelligence Group here, tightly uh, intertwined with the media and with the academic world. Yeah, of course it's going to have an influence on them. And but we all we all know this. I think everyone intellectually knows it. But what I find when I talk to people is they're not emotionally at the level where they can really let it sink in and recognize that their news media is just it's propaganda. Not only is it propaganda, but the juridical factor. If anybody that goes in there, you have Nick Pope, you have others who, who, who are people who worked, for example, everybody knows that Nick worked at the Ministry of Defense. And still, in my perception, although Nick says that he didn't feel this way, is they start cringing, they start mocking, and, and it, it's just part of the, the propaganda machine. But recently I had Dr. David Jacobs on the show. And we discuss, of course, of course, all of this. And yes. he, he is of the opinion that there's no such thing as government secrecy. 
that the government is not involved whatsoever. And I wonder yes. if he has read any of your books. <laughs> well, D David and I know each other very well, and I, I've, uh, uh, I've, I've told him many times that I just find his position completely non-tenable. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a credible position in my view, and he knows that I feel this way, so it's really not a problem for me to, to get into it here with you. Um, has he read my books? Well, I don't know if he's read my newest one. Um, I'm pretty sure he read my first one. I, actually, I'll just say, I uh, early on in in my uh, entry into this field, I think in '02 or so, I, I ran into him and I said, uh, "So, someone told me that you're not using my book in your in your UFO class." And he, of course, he was using his own because he wrote a history of deal, dealing with that same period. Uh, he said, well, it's a little too long. <laughs> but, but really the main difference um, I mean, between uh, how I look at this and how I think he looks at it is, uh, yes, I, I do look at it as a cover-up, uh, and he doesn't. Uh, I, I've really never understood how it is that David can, can justify his perspective on this. And you had him on your show. I, haven't, I didn't hear what he had to say um, regarding that, but I, do, I know his basic – opinion is that they're just it, – it's impossible to for the government. They're more incompetent than they are competent, I think is what he often would say. And um, it's just a matter of negligence and screw-up rather than actual cover-up. Uh, I just find that to be a lame explanation. Um, you know, he wrote his, his history just before the release of all the documents to the Freedom of Information Act. He didn't have access to them. Back in the mid '70s, when he wrote his book, *The UFO Controversy in America*, um, once those documents came out, it's, in my view, it's a slam dunk that military and intelligence community agencies have been deeply interested in UFOs and just lied about it. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely think there's a cover-up due to uh, the document, the document evidence that we have, and uh, also the extraordinary number of insiders. A lot of them are publicly known. Edgar Mitchell is one of them, the astronaut. He's talked about this at length. Um, so, yeah, I think no one's perfect. Marilyn Monroe couldn't cook from what I heard, and you know, we don't <laughs> hold it against her. Everyone's, everyone's got their, their, uh, their strengths and their limitations, and so I don't hold it against any researcher if they don't agree with me on every single point. Uh, but yeah, I think he's just wrong on the cover-up. No, that's yeah. fair. But uh, I don't mean to to continue speaking of uh, Dr. Jacobs. But the part that I could not reconcile was the the fact that he's had thousands of of uh, regression hypnotherapy hours, and with abductees, and he 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 states that hybrids are real. If that's the case, then our government must know that this is happening. And if this is happening, isn't this admission of extraterrestrial life and visitation? Yeah. Well. This is an argument that uh, one hears with um, people like John Alexander, which uh, hmm. if, if anyone gets a vote for being in M Majestic 12, uh, I think he, he, might, he might get my vote for being in it. John, if you're listening, hello. Um, John Alexander has publicly said many, many times that uh, there is no cover-up. Now, uh, and his argument is that uh, the U.S. bureaucratic system is such that you know bureaucracies only see 
what's what's in their little domain and that there isn't a bureaucracy within the u.s government structure that is charged with looking at ufos and so they just don't get into it and furthermore he has said many times that there isn't a cover-up because he was in a position to look for it and didn't find it therefore there is no cover-up so you can if you want to buy that i've got some nice swamp land in florida i'd be happy to sell you and speaking of uh, alexander <laughs> at the end of the year i invited him on the show and i'm going to say publicly here right. he responded he says yes i would like to be on the show but it has to be after May, and you'll understand why. It was a very cryptic message. After May. May after May of, 2000, of 2010. So I wonder yeah. why, why he said that. Well, that'll be after the X conference. I don't know if uh, it has anything to do with that. He's been a guest at uh, the last couple of X conferences that uh, Steve Bassett has organized. Yes. In fact, did a little debate with Steve at, with the last one. Well, he, he, we, we talked about you during our, our last uh, show, Richard. I believe you will be a speaker at the X Conference. Am I right? Yes, I have been invited. I'll, Excellent. I'll be there again, yeah. I'm the only speaker Stephen has had that has been to. I've spoken at every single one. Excellent. Well, you cannot break the trend then, uh, Richard. <laughs> now, this, this news, I have to tell everybody, uh, let me read it. It, it, the headlines read this. It's official. Bigelow Aerospace, the Las Vegas-based company that makes inflatable low-Earth orbiting modules, is now the go-to company for close encounters of the airborne kind. The FAA, in a December 10th update to its air traffic control organization, tells its air traffic controllers to tell anyone wanting to report UFO or unexplained phenomena activity to contact a UFO unexplained phenomena reporting data collection center. Now, what do you think about the FAA doing this for people who see a UFO should co contact Robert Bigelow's aerospace? Well, I've been uh, uh, looking at Mr. Bigelow's organization for a little while here, and I'm still really in the process of trying to investigate this and find out. But I've talked to a number of people who have been uh, who've been bumping up against this and uh, looking at it. It is true; it's, it's pretty openly known that Bigelow. Um, Bigelow and his people have been trying to uh, work with MUFON over getting access to UFO reports that MUFON's been doing. So they're they're interested in collecting these things uh, for for different reasons. I'm not sure why exactly, except I I'm convinced it has to be tied in somehow with the uh, the fact that they they're not just involved in. What, what did you call it? Low, was this low Earth orbiting? Low yes. Earth orbiting? Yeah, so right. they're doing – they do satellites, exactly. And so, um, I mean, you can speculate. I mean, a number of people have speculated here. Is this a case where um, they are doing um, some kind of contract work whereby they are monitoring unknown activity in some way that's uh, on Earth? If you've got – Satellite – so, for example, if they're, if they're getting reports from MUFON and they only want, they only want recent reports from MUFON, um, not, not the old ones, my, my feeling is that this is because they can, they can investigate recent reports that coincide with their own satellite trackings of UFOs. This is what I'm wondering. Um, now, this connection – an explicit connection with the government through the FAA. You know, my only my only uh, conclusion, at least provisionally, is that they're they're doing some kind of covert 
UFO monitoring on behalf of on behalf of the intelligence community. I mean, Robert Bigelow, who ran the National Institute for Discovery Science (NIDS), that, that had all intelligence operatives in it. So this is not a new thing. This is all U.S. intelligence-dominated uh, efforts, both with with NIDS and I'm assuming currently. So it's just, uh, I think, another way for the intelligence community to scoop up UFO reports. Well, you mentioned that Robert Bigelow has shown interest in in the recent MUFON cases. Well, let's consider that he pledged $1 million to MUFON. What do you think the connection is? You know, we have to consider that they also build Air Force satellites. And folks, I want you to see the connection here. What would the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, federal, have you call a private company, Bigelow Aerospace, that makes Air Force satellites. So if someone sees a mothership on top of their house, they're not to call 911. They're not to call the local military installation. They're to call Bigelow Aerospace. doesn't make sense to me, Richard. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing Bigelow Aerospace would have to – they would probably get a 911 uh, connection. Most people would instinctively call 911. Uh, but I'll bet you that then 911 would, would uh, run, it, run it to Bigelow if that's how it would work. So um, – yeah, I just think that I, I don't know what what's the uh, the actual goal here, but it obviously it looks like Bigelow's group is doing work for the U.S. intelligence community in this manner, uh, and MUFON is valuable. I mean, it, it's an amazing situation with that organization. MUFON, it, its actual cash value is is almost nil, but the value if you're if you're someone who is interested in getting up-to-date UFO reports, MUFON is incredibly valuable because they actually have a, a network of people who do investigations of UFO reports. Really, they're the only network of, of civilians that do UFO investigations with, with a, in any kind of standardized way. They've had an investigator's manual for th over 30 years. Um, there's not a lot of members to move move on, but they are scattered enough throughout the U.S. that if there's an interesting sighting, there's a, a chance that a MUFON investigator can get there and do a hands-on investigation. That is, you talk to witnesses and you try to triangulate and you talk to local agencies and so on. So MUFON's valuable, and uh, getting access to um, their recent cases, I think, would be of interest. And and it's funny because if you go to the MUFON site. Um, I think all of their older cases are readily available, if I'm not mistaken. I was just there not long ago, and it's a really nice site. They've done some good things with it. But the current cases, um, unless I'm wrong about this, I think um, if you want to get access to everything that's going on in MUFON, you can't do it unless you get some kind of inside track, like the current cases that MUFON's looking into. So I think and speaking of that, the local chapters, folks, if you want to get involved, this is as grassroots as you can get involved. Take a, take a look at your local chapter. A lot of times they're looking for, for field investigators. If the government is, is doing it and they're not letting us know, this is your opportunity to really get involved. And here's another question. Many people who are well known in the UFO community like uh, uh, our mutual friend Edgar Mitchell, uh, Jesse Marcel Jr., Dr. Stephen Greer, for example, all post the very logical argument that if ETs were here and if they were acting in a self-interest that does not have human beings' best interests in mind, then given their obvious technological advantage that it would take just physically 
travel beyond the solar system, we would easily be taken over, conquered, or enslaved. Furthermore, there is the well-known story of Werner von Braun telling Carol Rosen that ETs, all ETs, are benevolent. In other words, many well-known and respected leaders in the field believe that if they had nefarious intentions, we wouldn't be here right now. What do you think about their logic on that specific topic, Richard? I, I strongly disagree with their position on this. I think the logic is weak. I think the logic is non-existence. I mean, think about it. Just because someone doesn't come in and wipe you out right away, that, that proves that they're good. That proves that they're uh, looking out for your interests. Um, no, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Um, now, it's not like they're here to eat the entire human population, I guess. Uh, <laughs> they're not. Okay. But um, to just conclude that, that all of these, these alien races are benevolent – uh, presumably, if there's more than one here, that I think it's absurd. Um, what's going on when people are being abducted against their will and they describe some of the experiences that they have had? You just mentioned Dave Jacobs not long ago. Right. Now, he's, he's very well known for being one of the people who looks at the more negative aspects of this. But look, his research has pointed out some very negative aspects of the abduction experience. Are we just to throw all of that out? I think that's ridiculous. Uh, why do you think people lock their doors at night? All right, and just because these other species are more advanced, I mean, think of it this way: uh, let uh, you know, let's say that you and I had the chance to go back in time a thousand years, and we met with uh, an earlier human society, and let's say we took a group of of our peers back. All right, so we're way more advanced than those people. We got iPods, we got really nice guns, we've got all these other things that. They would love, you know, love to have, and they might just be tempted to think, "Wow, look how advanced those people are! They've obviously solved all of the technological and probably social problems that we experience today. They must be uh, much more evolved in every way." And you know, we would then look at each other and not say anything. <laughs> uh, uh, clearly, it wouldn't be true. All right, Th this whole idea that a more technologically advanced civilization is somehow more spiritually advanced is, I think, a total fallacy uh, and a dangerous one. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily all dark entities and evil, but, I mean, just look at life on Earth. Uh, look at the um, humans and then on down the evolutionary chain, so uh, to other primates and then other, uh, other mammals and so on. Human beings have much greater potential for good and evil than any of the other animals on earth. Yes, we can we have saints, we have Mother Teresa and Gandhi and other good people. And we've got some really screwed up, messed up people who are sadistic and who we wouldn't want to leave our children alone in a room with for two seconds. All right? And that is because of our more advanced brains. We have more potential available to us. And so, uh, you know, I look at other conceivably more advanced species as being equally, you know, either they could be very, very uh, godlike and benevolent and good, or they could be, well, demonic and evil. I don't see this as all that outrageous. And besides, life, I still will be inclined to think, follows certain basic rules for survival. Uh, Entities 
are still interested in their own survival. And um, I have to think that planets like Earth are not quite a dime a dozen. Uh, there may be life that's abundant in the universe, but we've got water, we've got a great atmosphere, we've got all this genetic diversity. Man, we've got a great place. Uh, is it too outrageous to assume that other species wouldn't want to come here to take a look at it, maybe uh, participate in, and get some of the wealth that's that's here. And maybe they'd be interested in us too. Uh, we're very interesting, I think. Um, maybe they've uh, modified us. Some people argue that this is the case. I don't think it's a bad argument. And if that's the case, are we in fact someone's property? Are they treating us nicely or not? Well, we treat we treat cows nicely until we slaughter them. Right. A farmer takes care of his, his animals real nicely until it's time um, to do other things with them. So, no, I, I'm very um, I'm very skeptical of these types of arguments. Um, Dr. Greer has made this many many times, and I've I've taken public issue with it many times, and I'll continue to do so. That's a long-winded answer to your question, but there you go. No, that's fine, and and, and that's one thing that I have to give to Dr. Jacobs and and, and Bud Hopkins. Uh, they mentioned that two to five percent in the research that they've done, two to five percent of the United States population has been involved in some type of a abduction. If that's the case, that means that we don't have any free will to say yes or no to abductions. Isn't that proof, if abductions are real, that uh, they may not have our best interests in mind? But once again, it's all about perspective. If we are a civilization in peril, we may be losing a resource here, and we were able to go into another planet to, to get that resource f to survive. Those, those uh, uh, inhabitants of that planet will perceive us as, as malevolent, but in reality, we're trying to survive. Wouldn't be the same if they were coming here for a resource. We call them malevolent, but in reality, they're trying to survive. Yeah, so it's a absolutely. matter of perception. I, I agree with that. And so... Uh, I'm not saying that you know we all have to get our shotguns and and fight the evil invaders. Right. I don't. We need more information, and uh, what we have are leaks and rumors and and possibilities and maybe probabilities, but we don't have definites anything. And so I just think it's very premature for any researcher, and that includes me, to uh, go on record and say this is what the aliens or the extraterrestrials are like. Uh, with due respect to Carol Rosin, and I've met Carol on one occasion. I, I thought she was a very nice person. But, you know, look, this is one story about Werner von Braun. There's no independent confirmation of it at all. And before I start using a story like that as absolutely fact, I, I need a little bit more than one person's statement that this is the case. I'm sorry. And... Um, um, so I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to alienate Carol. I think she's nice, but I don't really know what Verna von Braun said to her. All I know is what she says Verna von Braun said to her. Right, right. You cannot corroborate. He's no longer with us. But I don't like to read long quotes, but I have to on this one. Richard, on the website ufoskeptic.org, there is an article posted that you author name Everywhere by Stealth. In the conclusion yes. to the article, you mentioned, quote, that the fight to end UFO secrecy remains one of the great causes of our day. It is a struggle for truth, self-government, and survival. It is a call for courage in the face of a potentially grave threat. It is fighting the good fight regardless of the consequences. Fight, in quotes, may well be the most apt of all words, 
Based upon our limited knowledge about the underside of this phenomenon, humanity appears to be facing the presence of others under the worst possible circumstances. The maxim, quote-unquote, divide and conquer, is well-worn in our history. An observation of the human response to the presence of others suggests it is one they know us well, unquote. Richard, do you write this because of the grave consequence regarding the, quote-unquote, fight with the powers that be's control over the ET phenomenon, or for a potential fight with the ETs themselves? Yeah, wow, you know, um, I hadn't read that. I wrote that seven or maybe eight years ago, and um, I remember that. Well, I think uh, I still agree with what I said fundamentally, which is that uh, what I was talking about there is is a fight on two two fronts here. We have a we have a, a power structure that <clears throat> your microphone is a little bit far from your oh, mouth now. I'm sorry. Let me bring that in. Make that. We have a we have a power structure that has been uh, lying to us about this matter for many many years. And uh, when I say we we meet the UFO phenomenon under the worst circumstances, I I talked in that article a lot about people dealing with this in a completely atomized way. I mean, when most people see a UFO, after all, they're usually alone or with a small group of people. They almost never take uh, any kind of public action about it. What can they do? There's hard, you know, a lot of people don't even know that they can report this anywhere. So they deal with the most incredible experience of their life almost by themselves. And this is again and again. Uh, that was the phenomenon that prompted me to write that particular article. I don't think that's a good sign. Um, these other entities, whatever they are, are expending a lot of their infrastructure to do what they're doing. Think about it. These sightings are widespread, okay? Uh, they nonetheless make great efforts to hide themselves from us. So uh, this is something for them that's an important mission that costs a lot, I would assume, in terms of whatever money they have. It costs a lot of it, uh, it would seem to me, and, uh, and they don't want us to know about it. And it does involve, uh, in part, taking people and doing something to them. So if nothing else... This is not an occasion for us to simply roll over and say, well, they're here to help us out. Let's just you know, open, open up our consciousness and, and relate to them as, a, as a higher advanced beings. I think there's a little more involved here, Mel. And on the other hand, then there's our own power structure, which uh, you know, we have to fight the fight in a sense of getting an open acknowledgement that something is going on. And then it's going to be another fight to find out just what it is that is going on. Before we start talking about a true uh, relationship with these other beings, we have to get a few answers. We have to find out what the hell they're doing. Now, I, I've, uh, I have some ideas, and I've even talked to some people that I think may have information on this. But I don't, I don't know. What it looks like is that we are very interesting to a lot of groups. And that, to me, makes a lot of sense. I think Earth at this time, humanity at this time, would be of supreme interest to any intelligence that, that can get over here, either through dimensions or through space, whatever. I think that right now, we're on this tightrope of a civilization. 
we're either going to reinvent ourselves in the next couple of decades as a super advanced, artificially intelligent, incredible new species, or we may just collapse. We may just fall into a, a major infrastructure collapse and go into Australopithecus, for all I know. All right, so it's a very supremely interesting moment in our history. And I would think that anyone who could be observing us up close and personal right now would be interested in doing it. Uh, we're about to leap into their world. You know, progress isn't just linear, it is exponential. And so we very well may have the capability soon to be dealing with them, whoever they happen to be, in a much more substantial way than we consider right now. And so I think that it's true that there are multiple groups that are that have a, an extended presence on this planet right now. And, and to, to know who they all are and what their agendas are, I think is absurd that, you know, they're all, they're all good. They're all here to help us. I just, I think that's, that's foolish to think that. And what you said about progress is exponential. That just immediately comes to mind my conversation with Edgar Mitchell when he said that his uh, great-grandparents came from the, from the south to the west in uh, uh, covered wagons in 100 years, and then he went to the moon, all in 100 years. So if, if it's not exponential, I don't know what else is. But let's take a little diversion for a moment. Your work and lectures have included the statements by William MacDonald, that according to Lockheed Skunk Works pioneer Kelly Johnson, there, there are two types of UFOs, ours and theirs. And you have postulated that this UFO study and reverse engineering study, profits and revelations, went underground or quote-unquote private in 1969, evolving into a, an international transnational group. I think we talked about this at the beginning of the show, but can we you did. share more of this? Yeah, I think this is very likely what did happen. Um, uh, every direction, every approach into this problem that I take, I end up getting the same basic information, which is that it's gone private. It's gone private. It's gone private. Uh, this is what I think the scenario actually is that occurred. Let's, let's go back 60-some-odd years, uh, back to the late 40s, okay? So um, we're, we're close to Harry Truman, and he decides that uh, – he, he learns that not only are UFOs real and that they seem to be alien, but we got some of their technology. We recovered some exotic pieces here that we haven't figured out how to, uh, how to, how to duplicate yet. So the, real, the first question is, what do we do with this information? Do we tell the world or do we not tell the world? I guess that would be one of the first questions. And it very well might have been uh, Truman's initial instinct to say, yes, I'd like to tell the world. But then he would have to think twice. Uh, one of the things he'd have to be aware of is if you tell the world that you've got this alien artifact, it's going to be a lot harder not to share it with the rest of the world, and that includes the Soviet Union, with whom there was a Cold War going at the time. Uh, it's certainly true that the U.S. didn't want to share its atomic technology with the world. Uh, I can't can imagine that they would want to share something as exotic as alien technology. So what they might do, and what I think what they did do, is you get a, a group together, of your top people, and you charge this group with the task of figuring out what, what they're going to do. One guy's job might be to find out how to get the technology to industry so they can study it and replicate it. Another guy might have to figure out the social ramifications and how bad the public panic might be in the event that this came out. Another person might uh, be involved in figuring out who are these other beings? Do we have anything to worry about? And all of these logical questions that we would want to ask 
I'm sure that they asked. <laughs> and so, but here's how the secret goes private. You got that artifact. Now uh, the army gives it, let's say, to Lockheed or to Boeing or to General Electric or Raytheon or all of them, who knows. And after five or ten years, maybe one of their brilliant scientific teams has their own eureka moment. Maybe they can't completely replicate all of the electromagnetic properties of this particular artifact, but maybe they've got a great idea idea on how to uh, improve their integrated circuits or to create fiber optics or um, to create high tensile fibers and so forth, lasers, who knows? I think that the spin-off capabilities was, would probably be very significant. And so once you start making money for the defense industry on this, really, what, what is your incentive now for making this public? Zero. You have no incentive for making this public. Uh, I've sometimes referred to this as the goose that lays golden eggs, and I think it, it did and it does. Uh, in particular, when you look at how the United States government has been for a good century now dominated by private financial interests, and it just has been. That's the way it is. That's our government. Uh, when you leave government, they go back into private industry and finance, and they make their money that way. So it's a revolving door. So if you're some Navy admiral or Army four-star general, what you want to do is have a very good relationship with Boeing because when you leave the Army, they're going to hire you as an as advanced senior vice president where you make a lot of money on, on that technology that now Boeing has access to. I think that's exactly how it works. Now, um, you know, when exactly did it move from the office of the presidency to some private, somewhat international group? Well, Kelly Johnson intimated it was 1969. I don't know if that's true, but it could have been. I do think that the 1960s is a very good candidate for this having happened. Could have been after the Kennedy assassination, for all I know. I think that's also a possibility. Um, in any case, I think, you know, as with the non-UFO world, we can see that national governments are dominated by private financial interests. So too, it looks like very much so the UFO, um, the UFO technology issue is also dominated by those same groups. And we have to take uh, our one and only break, uh, Richard. But let me just say that when I talk to uh, Grant Cameron, now that you mentioned Raytheon's Conkworks, the usual suspects, I said, okay, so these people, if they have the technology and we have the Freedom of Information Act, which only deals with government, if they have that technology stored there, what can we possibly get from them via FOIA? Can we get anything at all? No, no. And the whole point of privatization is that it takes... It, it takes all the winds out of FOIA sales anyway. Exactly. Because it becomes not, it's not classified now, it's proprietary, which is a lot more secret. So it's in the best interest of the government to keep this in private hands so that we, uh, the common man, cannot get access to it and uh, finally get the secrecy out. But we have to take a one on only break. Tell us once again how to get in touch with uh, your publications, your website. Yes, please. Uh, my my website is keyholepublishing.com. Just like looking through key, K-E-Y-H-O-L-E, publishing.com. Uh, failing that, you can just Google my name and the, the top link's usually going to get you right there. Richard Dolan. Uh, write to me. You can get to me through my website very easily and I, I do my best at answering all emails. 
and I'll put a uh, link on our website as well. This is Mel Fabregas with you with Richard Dolan, author of Volume 1, 2 of UFOs and National Security State. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. This is Stephen Bassett, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.